we don't have to tell you, Nathaniel, right? Like being at the top is a really lonely place. Sometimes you need to bounce ideas off of people either confidentially or just kind of blow off steam and know that you have someone else to talk to about different things. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today are Michelle Stevenson and Mike Liddell, two former longtime leaders at NGP Van Every Action. They were the chief revenue officer and general manager of digital, respectively, who now run a consulting firm called Grow for Good Strategies, where they work to help scale impact businesses and nonprofits. Mike and Michelle are two good people who found a way to apply their talents to help others grow their progressive enterprises. So they're a very good fit for this show. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Michelle and Mike at Grow for Good Strategies. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Mike and Michelle, welcome. In your case, Mike, welcome back. I talked to you back in 2020 for episode 415. And so I am going to ask you both to give me quick biographies, but in Mike's case, I won't ask too many follow-up questions since he's already been here and people can refer to that. So Mike, a quick summary of how you got to where you are right now. And then Michelle, let's do a little bit longer one for you. Career-wise, I started off working in Texas Democratic politics, working, I had a, a small kind of freelance business where I built websites for nonprofits and democratic campaigns, again, in Texas, which is where I'm from, and worked for various different campaigns, left Texas and worked at the Democratic National Convention. I worked at the DSCC for a couple of cycles. I worked at a company called CTSG, which was an early kind of nonprofit tech company and consulting company that also worked with political campaigns too. I worked in the Obama administration at the Treasury Department. From there, I went to NGP Van, and I worked at NGP Van for about a little over 11 years. I was the GM of digital and was there during the NGP Van phase as well as the every action phase and then eventually the Bonterra phase. And then I left in January and along with Michelle started up Grow for Good Strategies. And in general, your expertise has followed that website, digital, digital tools area. 
Exactly. Yeah. That's what all, all those kind of past jobs I've, I've mostly been doing. It's had various different names over the years, whether it was digital or online fundraising, online communications, internet strategy, things like that. But yeah, that's, that's basically been my career. And at NGP van, you know, I oversaw all the, the digital products, our digital business line. So that included things like, um, you know, the email tools, uh, donation pages, um, social media tools, advocacy tools, et cetera. Michelle, what's your story? Mm. Well, uh, I always tease when we have to do this because I, I say that I'm a lot younger than Mike, so my resume is not long. <laughs> <laughs> and I usually get a couple laughs. I started at Emily's List when they used to have Campaign Corps, and that was fresh out of college. I, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do out of college, but I knew I wanted to do something in social justice, and I thought I wanted to go to law school, but I was smart and decided to get out into the workforce and really stretch my legs a little bit and see what I actually really like to do. And so through a recommendation of someone that I had interned with at the uh, Human Rights Commission in Michigan... They referred me to Campaign Corps through Emily's List, and that sort of got me started in this whole crazy, crazy business. And for folks who don't remember Campaign Corps, it was a training that was put on by Emily's List for people who were fresh out of college, grad school, whatever. They recruited about 30 staffers from throughout the country, and then they would place them on their targeted races. And so I happened to be placed on a targeted race in Ohio for Jennifer Bruner when she was running for the secretary of state seat. And so uh, hilariously left Michigan to go to Ohio, which anyone from Michigan is like anywhere but Ohio, but that's where they sent me. And I loved it and found that I really liked fundraising. That was sort of the, the natural area of campaigns that I was attracted to. And then after that, I went back to Michigan for a couple months and waited in the in the wings to get a D.C.-based job. And Emily's List happened to have one that was in the department called Political Opportunity Program, which was their state and local department at the time. And I flew to D.C. and, and started my career in national politics. And that first cycle got to go to, I think it was 23 or 26 different states in, in just a two-year period and helped to train hundreds of women and really organize the trainings on behalf of the trainers and soaked up just so much from some of the best political strategists in the country. And also saw a lot during that cycle. So in addition to the trainings, I would get dropped on the ground to work on any of their sort of targeted races, or if they were trying to target flipping an entire chamber as an example, or for them, it was really important back then to knock off some of those stats around like majority female senators, right? Um, holding that legislative chamber. And so in that experience, that is when I learned that I also had a real interest in political technology because I would get on the ground with these candidates and I would say, okay, I'm here to help you do call time. You got to raise X amount of dollars. Okay, where's your donor list? And they would go out to their garage. And I was like, what? Or I would get on the, the ground and they'd say, okay, we got to do canvassing this weekend. And we need to knock X number of doors. And I'd say, okay, where's your voter file? Where's your canvas sheets? And they would go out to their garage. And I was like, oh my gosh, there has to be a better way. And so after the 2008 cycle, I started seeking that next role. And I knew I wanted to go to business school, but I also just still had this like itch, right, of figuring out and solving this problem specifically for state and local candidates. And that's when Mary Jane Volk actually introduced me to you, Nathaniel. I think you guys had lunch. And she said, oh, 
you got to meet this person. And, and then it happened to be that you and Stu had that position open for the first state and local sales hire for that department. And that was my first go-to-market experience. And as soon as I met you guys, and as soon as I got on the ground at NGP, I knew, okay, this is something I'm really excited about that. And so over the course of a decade, I worked um, you know, on the sales team initially, and then we said, okay, this whole state and local bringing NGP to down-ballot candidates has some legs. And so let's expand this operation. And then after, I think it was maybe a year and a half or two years, then Stu said, okay, come be the VP of sales. And so then I took over the department. And then in 2014, I started to get itchy again. And I said, okay, I either want to leave and do something different because I feel like we really have built something great, but it feels like a well-oiled machine. I want to build something new. And he said, okay, well, what about this nonprofit market thing? And I said, yes, I think that sounds great. And that is how I moved over to Every Action in 2014 and helped build up the sales and marketing operation for that and eventually became the chief revenue officer and came back you know, across both sides of the company. And then in 2019, I, I started to get itchy again, you know, after being there for about a decade and, and knew it was time to find my next challenge. And so my plan was to take a break. I just had my first kiddo in 2018. We all know being parents that having newborns and working uh, long hours is not always the most energetic part of your, your lifespan. And so I took a took a planned break, but people kept calling and saying, hey, can you consult? I have this business or I have this thing that I need help with. And, and so I found myself consulting for social impact businesses. After I realized, okay, I think this is what I want to do, then I slowly started to convince Mike to join me because <laughs> I miss working with him. And we worked really well together. And then, you know, here we are. Well, that seems like a pretty good career for someone who had aspirations to go to law school and aspirations to go to business school. It seems like you were able to climb pretty well without those things. When you look back at, at the education by doing versus the education that you didn't get by going back to school, are, are you happy with that course? Absolutely. I mean, I think financially too, being in the workforce for all of those years during your your peak years where you're able to work those really long hours, I can't be two places at once now, now that I have kids. And so I, yeah, I don't really regret it. There are times, um, and I'm, I've always been a sponge too, when it comes, comes to information. So if there's something that feels like a gap for me, you know, I find myself seeking it out and either reading or listening or asking, finding resources to help fill in those gaps. I think there are a couple times where I'm like, oh man, I wish I went to business school right now. And it's usually around finance, right? Like that's, I think, one of the trickier parts where you really do need a tighter educational background there. But aside from that, yeah, I mean, I, I've always been more action driven and I think that's suited me well. And I'm, I'm not sure it's the best course for everybody. I don't have any regrets in that, in that direction. So when you were talking about working with these campaigns and they would go out to their garage to... I'm assuming because they had like a box with a list in it on paper, but I wasn't quite sure what you meant. A, what did you mean? And B, what the heck was I doing from 1997 to that time that there's all these campaigns that are not on software? Why do you think that was still at that time? I mean, I think that the internet was still relatively new and a lot of those candidates were still scared of technology too, right? I and mean, when you have state and local campaigns, especially so much of that campaign is driven by the candidates themselves. And so for many of them, 
they were used to having their work on paper. They were used to having it in their BlackBerry at the time, right? And I would, I would sit there and go through their BlackBerry as they're sort of scrolling through. But yes, they would, they would go out to the garage and basically get the old printed call sheets from a couple months before that the caucus might have like built for them or something. And, and that was, that was their data. And so I oftentimes would take that information and then put it into Google spreadsheets where Google sheets were like very new at the time. And so I would start putting them into an organized fashion for them. And I found myself like trying to find these more tech focused solutions, but that were really inexpensive for them because they were also poor, right? And and convincing them to spend a couple thousand dollars on technology that wasn't their website, right? They all knew they had to have a website and they'd spend five grand on their website. But when it came to a, a voter file or it came to their NGP donor database, they were still a little hesitant. Not all of them, but a good chunk of them. Actually, when I talk to folks who are trying to sell into campaigns now, it's not that different among many, many campaigns, shockingly. It's not. You really have to convince them of the ROI. One of the the number one ways to get those campaigns to, to purchase technology has been from referrals. And usually it's consultants or it's some state focused person, whether it's the caucus director or somebody that they respect. And if they say, oh, you've got to you got to buy this, you got to do this, that that is usually the, the key. Otherwise, it's a lot of convincing. So fundraising is a lot like sales. And so you had some taste of that through Emily's list. But then when you go over to NGP Van and Every Action and Bonterra, that whole saga, it's quite clear that you, that your main road is through the sales part of the company. And that's as that company was growing rather quickly and therefore having to change how it did sales over time. Can you just sort of talk about what you and the company were learning I mean, there was already a sales team when you got there. And and I certainly remember before there was a sales team or even when I was the only person allegedly selling. But I think that it's a struggle for a lot of entrepreneurs that have a small company to figure out how to navigate from CEO selling to a team and figure out how do you incentivize the team properly? How do you build the right kind of team? Can you just talk about first, what were you learning there? And then we can talk later about sort of how you're applying that nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I think in the early days, I think the thing that I learned right off the bat was that there are thousands of campaigns, right? There are. And especially when we're talking about politics or even when we're talking about C4 selling or even when we're talking about nonprofit selling, right? There's a, there's a lot of opportunity out there, but you, and you can't be everywhere. And so there was two things that really stuck out as learned lessons in the, even the first year that I worked at NGP. And that was that one, you got to be organized. And so when I started there, there was some organization there for sure, right? We were using a sales database, but it was a lot of just kind of grab and get and, you know, how quick the opportunities came. But when it's quiet, when, when people aren't calling you, it's it's really important how you're spending that time and being organized was very important. Secondly, particularly with down ballot candidates or even with federal candidates, right, coming up with some sort of prioritization of how are you going to hit those targets first and who, because why are you going to spend an entire week going after, let's just say the Nebraska unicameral state legislative caucus, right, that doesn't spend a lot of money, versus maybe spending that time on the Michigan Senate and really building deep relationships. And you're going to get 
five times more when you're talking about acquisition. One of the things I think with political selling in particular is is adding this political layer on top of it to really help you focus your time, focus your energy. And then the second thing, you know, I think you asked this question about how do you incentivize and how do you, you know, create goals and plans around that is again, taking that political landscape and starting to use how you did in previous cycles, adding that political layer of what's going on in this cycle, and then starting to set goals and projections. That was something that the company was still figuring out. I certainly was figuring it out the first couple of years I was there. But over that decade, the projections and how we were coming up with those became more and more data-driven, more and more sophisticated, not just on the political side, but also on the nonprofit side. And I think that for me, I like thank God for data. I use data and Mike can attest to this a lot in my decision making. And that's one of the things that we spend a lot of times with time with our clients on is how do they have a data-driven approach? Because you can't just constantly be throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that you're gonna come out the other side. How do you think about hiring the right people onto a sales team and retaining the right people? Yeah, yeah. Certainly. I think different markets call for different personality types sometimes. But for me, I know as a manager, I always looked for grit first and foremost, whether it was a sales hire or, or it was, you know, amongst my entire team, to be totally frank, right? I love those people who are gritty, even if they didn't go to Harvard, they didn't go to an Ivy League school. I didn't really care about that. I did care that they had that at least knowledge on the political side, but that they also had that grit. And they were nice people. One of the things that I think was oftentimes a hidden time suck for salespeople in particular was when we would have sort of a bad apple on the team and they, it really sort of spread from person to person to person. And I think that happens in a lot of organizations. But to really think about that as a family, as a team, you're spending a lot of time together spending a lot of energy, negative energy on either HR issues or people upset, their productivity goes down. And that's a really big thing when we're talking about sales, right? It's a lot of outbound. It's a lot of time focused on selling. And if they're busy crying in the corner about something that someone said to them, well, that sets you off track. And so I think over the years, we really tried to get more narrow, more narrow on that personality type. And sometimes would say no to high performers if we knew that they were going to drag other performers down just based on their own personality types, if that makes sense. It does. Mike, I haven't forgotten about you, but I'm going to keep asking (laughs) Michelle a couple more questions on this. No, no, go for it. When I've talked to people who are in professional sales in a commercial space, one of the things that they have trouble with is retention of people who are doing really well. Someone who is making a lot of money loses the motivation that they had when they were really scrabbling for it and they maybe bounce around between different companies because of that. Do you think it's different in the political in the social impact space and what did you do to retain people who, who were doing really well? That's a really great question. I think all great salespeople that I've ever worked with have been highly competitive individuals, right? And not just having that grit, but they've had, they're very competitive. I'm very competitive myself too, right? So I'm like, when I see them, I see them. I'm like, see you, you see me, right? That is a blessing and a curse because when you're highly competitive, just like me over the years, as I've gotten itchy at different points, right, in my career, it's because I need that competitive challenge. And so I think one of the things with 
really high performers is to constantly find that next challenge for them so that they feel like they're growing, they feel like they're they're moving. I also think it's an additional challenge when we talk about people who are in their earlier parts of their careers, right? Because if you're competitive, plus you're constantly wanting to grow, well, you do want to hop around because you're, you want to go up and up and up and up the ladder. And that's just part of your DNA. And so I think that that, that is pretty straightforward, whether you're talking commercial or you're talking social impact. One of the things that I think helped retain a lot of our really good talent, and we weren't always successful in doing that, but I think that one of the things that we did was, it was, we had this extra layer of like, you're doing this work, not just because you love hitting your numbers and you're motivated by that, but you're motivated by seeing the clients and the, the outcomes, right, of the actual clients that you served. And that was really motivating to those people as well. And so I didn't always want to hire those commercial personality types that were high performers somewhere else if they didn't have that like extra drive when it came to the social impact space. I knew that they wouldn't stay for very long. And it's really hard to explain politics to someone who has never worked in it, to be totally frank, or even nonprofits who people who have not worked in nonprofits. It's its own language. And I know every every industry says that, but that is consistently true over and over and over and over again, as I've experienced it. Mike, you're now doing this consulting firm with Michelle. What did you learn at NGP Van Bonterra, every action, that you apply most to your job today? One of the big things that kind of happened since we last talked in the Bonterra world was that we did a number of acquisitions and that was something that I had never done before. And that was a really kind of eye-opening process for me because one, you know, you get to see how a number of different companies are run and what they're doing and what's working for them and what isn't working for them. Even things that you don't end up acquiring, you often get to go through the process and get to really understand lots of those different companies. And then obviously, if you do acquire one of them, it's even a, a deeper dive into how they run things and how to make their systems and, and processes work with the things that you've been doing. Um, and so that was that I would say was really, you know, eye opening for me. I think a lot of those, a lot of that, you know, either built on existing knowledge that I had or you know, brought in some new ideas, new ways of looking at things. And, and, and now I feel like we're applying a lot of that to our, our companies that we're working with and taking some of those lessons that we've learned. Can you be specific about a, an example or two of what you had in mind when you were saying that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, without getting into too many details that I probably shouldn't reveal, but just looking at things about, say, for instance, like how a company maybe approached their product development or their customer support or their sales and marketing processes, how they prioritize different things. So some of the companies that, that we hired had totally different support models where instead of maybe having a support team that was dedicated to support, you might have engineers who are taking support calls. And that could be a totally different way of approaching things. Not that one way is necessarily better than another, but you might set your company up to be structured in a different way because you're going after a different market that needs a different support experience. So that's maybe like one, one example, but 
there's lots of different kind of areas like that where we would dig in and we would see like, oh, hey, these folks are doing X, Y, and Z, and, and it's really working for them, and it's totally different than what we did. And on the flip side, we would also maybe dig in and see oh, you know, they have a marketing operation that's up and running and they're spending 3x what we're spending on this particular channel and they're getting worse results. And so we could come in and say, hey, listen, we've got a better way of doing this and we can help you accelerate your business by taking some of the lessons that we've learned in this particular channel. So, so yeah, ho hopefully that answers your question. Michelle, can you field the same question? What were you learning during that decade plus at what became became Bonterra that you most apply to your your growth for good enterprise now? Yeah, certainly. I think um, one of the things that I learned and I didn't, you know, having not gone to business school, right, a lot of self-taught metrics development over the years. But as I mentioned, I'm very data driven. And so um, when we did the insight acquisition years ago, it was taking sort of the, the rough version of uh, what I had been tracking in my head. And some of those things were industry standard, but I learned a lot of new things too, right? You mean when Insight acquired every action? Correct, correct, yeah. correct. Yeah, exactly. And, and having someone look in, right, on the way that we were running things, I learned a lot in that process. Some of those things were, um, you know, validating, like, oh, thank goodness I was doing my projections this way. Some some of those other things. So I learned new things. And and that is a big, that was a big chunk of learning period for me over those couple of years going into that, that process and, and coming out the other side as well, that now we try to take that for a lot of our customers, because we know even if they're not positioned to do that today, we want to set them up for success. Many of them want to go after investment at some point, and they're not, we're ed helping to educate them on some of those metrics that they should be tracking today and what that means to them, not just for the sake of like checking boxes, but to help them really understand the health of their organization. One of the examples is doing something as simple as like, are you using annual contract value to track your you know, revenue or using ARR? And what story do you want to tell out of that? And if you have political revenue, well, knowing what your average term length is, right, and your retention is incredibly important, right, if you're going to go after investment. Or if you're trying to factor in how much money are you going to have a year from now when things start to die down? Those are just some of the like mini lessons, but I think like that data-driven approach, giving our clients and meeting them where they are today, but also helping them be a couple steps ahead so that they can grow into that and not have to break everything down and then build it back up, which is a lot of what I felt like I had to do over the years, right? As we constantly grew and grew and grew, things would break naturally and you'd have to be like, oh, I wish I had known what I know today, right? So I could have planned better if that makes any sense. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, Michelle, about like, what's your view on the balance of influence from going through two rounds of private equity on the NGP van, at least part of the firm? Like you sort of mentioned the insight coming in and having positive things to say from outside about processes that you were learning from. Were, was, were there a mix of things that were both positive and negative in Insight and then Apex, or was it generally positive? I'm asking because there's a lot of talk in the industry generally about, you know, from outside of that company about 
is private equity a negative influence on our firms that are part of the progressive ecosystem. What's your view on that at this point? Sure, sure. Well, I wasn't part of the APEX process, so I had left before that. And although I had been consulting, I wasn't on the inside of, of that process, so I can't speak to that. I can say that I think that one of the lessons I learned in that was that we were really thoughtful about, is this the right partner? Do they get us? And I'm speaking about the Insight Ventures folks. And that felt a lot more comfortable than I think some of the other offers, right? And I think that that could have gone sideways real quick, right? Depending on who would have been selected in both directions, right? And so, yes, I mean, I, in many ways, it professionalized so much of what had been bootstrapped for many years. And there was a lot of, you know, charm to that and a lot of things that I think we did exceptionally well. And that was, like I said, very validating. But there were other places where greater efficiency and helping us move to that next stage, I think was helpful. It was very much a cultural mix. And I think at least when I was there, I feel like the balance was still in check. Um, I can't speak to what it felt like, you know, after I left, um, as I know, I've heard mixed, mixed reviews and, you know, things change over the years. So. And Mike, you were there longer, including till quite recently. What's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I think actually Michelle kind of hit the nail on the head when she talked about balance. This applies, I think, not just for private equity or or anything, but it kind of applies to any you know big partner or how you're going to set up your company. You want to have, especially if you're a company that's focused on a particular vertical, I think you want to have the right balance of input from People who maybe have like external experience with like generally running software companies or how to do sales across lots of different verticals. But you have to balance that with insight from people who understand the vertical and the market and who you're really selling to. That is really a challenge. And I think Michelle's right. I think with Insight, you know, that balance was was very good where they were able to bring in some outside expertise, but they still deferred to kind of the, the industry experts and folks who really understood the vertical to know the customers and to know the right products to build and and to know how to, to kind of make those final decisions. I think the APAX acquisition, is it's a little more complicated because it wasn't just an acquisition, it was a merging together of different companies, and they're still really going through that process. But I think that, like Michelle said, I think balance is really the key thing there. You have to kind of balance the, you know, hey, we've got these experts who, you know, acquired lots of companies in the past and have seen lots of things work with how do you really listen to and make sure that people within the company who understand those markets and those verticals like have that voice and are able to you know make the right decisions for their customers and their clients yeah and if i can just like add one thing to more broadly speaking when we talk to our clients and also when people are just seeking advice from us which happens quite a bit these days and we we love that right like we get a lot of different perspectives but one of the things that we really try to push the founders and CEOs on um, or anyone who's part of that executive leadership is like, what do you want your company to look like? But also, what do you want your life to look like? Right. I think sometimes, again, going back to that competitive personality type, we want to grow, grow, grow. But when you really sit down and you ask, OK, like, what do you want your life to look like? Right. And then what do you want your business to look like? And what do you want your employees lives to look like? It's a really important thing for founders and execs to center themselves on that and to not just go after 
the shiny object or the thing that they think they need to do next, because it might not always be the right thing for them. And then they're not happy, right? Some people just don't want a boss ever, right? And that's okay. I might be one of those people, but that's okay. And that doesn't mean that like you you haven't fulfilled your dream if you haven't checked those boxes. And I think sometimes taking investment or growing to a certain size is a big box for some CEOs based on that competitiveness or founders, right? And so we really try to, you know, create caution and help folks like think through that process for themselves and then center around that so they don't get off track. Does that make sense? It does. I believe I've had similar conversations with a lot of founders um, because it's one of the privileges of that position that you get to make that kind of decision. And if you abdicate that, then things might just go away that you wouldn't prefer in the long run. Right, right. Yeah. And I think like, you know, even I hate to frame it as like, be okay with mediocrity, running a profitable company, right, that is producing an excellent product or an excellent service, and it is helping the world, you know, be a better place. You're providing a home for a lot of employees with good benefits and sustainable environment. Like That's nothing to sneeze about. That's a real accomplishment. And I think people should take a little bit more of a victory lap sometimes, unless they want to grow to a certain size and all for it. But we try to help folks check themselves on what what it is that they really want to accomplish, right? Yeah. I sometimes refer people to a book, Small Giants. I don't know if you have read that. It's about like making a decision to be a very good company, not necessarily just always chasing to a certain size. And I think that that is appropriate in a lot of cases. Right. And Mike and I have had to find ourselves in that place of discipline too, where we've had the question so many times over the last year, okay, so are you guys going to grow? Are you going to be a big agency? Like, are you going to expand? And we're like, we love it. The fact that we're just highly curated of who we're working with, we're very selective and we're still picking our kids up after school and we're present in both parts of our lives, right? And that feels like a really nice luxury and it's also highly satisfying. But for both of us, that takes discipline because it's easy to be like, oh yeah, I'll take that big job, you know, so. Yeah, so you mentioned you'd started after you left doing some consulting for social impact enterprises. What's the moment where... Your this could be a business that doesn't just involve me and I want to bring Mike in. And I don't know if you've done any other hiring. It didn't sound like you had, but explain that kind of founding story there, Michelle. I left because I, you know, as I mentioned, I was feeling itchy. I wanted a new challenge. I'd been there for a decade and I love the company. It's just not, I didn't want to, you know, 40 years down the road, be like, this is the one thing I did in life. That was a real driving factor for me. And it wasn't a question of if it was always like when, and I wanted to spend more time with my, I then had a just one, now I have two kids. And that was also a driving factor for me of I wanted I hated being a crappy mom, <laughs> to be totally frank, right? It was really important. And so when I left for context, it was August of 2019. I'd had a very long intentional exit and continued to help consult so that the transition went smoothly. And I was consulting for just one client, but then COVID hit. And so I here I am, found myself hilariously, basically a housewife. Yes, I'm doing five hours a week, but I'm I mean, I'm taking care of my kid and my husband's a doctor. And so that's what our lives look like for a good chunk of 2020. 
And so I had a lot of time to reflect. I found myself being really thoughtful about what I was saying yes to when people were approaching me, but not spending a lot of time doing outreach of like, I want to do that. Because I, the third reason why I really wanted to leave is that I was very passionate about building something that was most likely going to be something in the climate space. Climate change scares me, scares me as a person, scares me as a mother. And I just felt like I needed to do something, but I wasn't sure what that was. And so I spent a lot of time listening to entrepreneurs and what did they build and how did they do it and and really just kind of soaking it up. And Mike and I have always had, I think, kind of a special relationship as coworkers, we stayed in touch. We've been friends. And I think that the decision for Mike to come was over the course of many conversations. Like you, we were walking, we went hiking together and we're talking about, you know, who do I want to work with? You know, what do you want to do? What would like get you excited? You know, and we just found that there was so much alignment, but that also that we might have different particular interests in some areas, but that we were centered on that fact of like, we really want to work with social impact companies. And we love building shit. That is something that I think we both share as a, as a quality. Um, and that it just happened organically. Mike, if you have anything to add to that, but maybe you have a different take. Yeah. What's your version? Michelle, Michelle bullied me. Into- <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I think Michelle and I, you know, um, we share a lot of the same values and then we also have kind of complementary skill sets. And so, I think we both were really excited about, you know, continuing to like be of service and, you know, help folks who are trying to make the world a better place, who want to run businesses that are, um, you know, highly ethical and are trying to help out, you know, folks like nonprofits and democratic campaigns that need help and need things like good technology to really succeed. And so we were excited about doing that and, and excited about getting to work together again. And, um, and, and it all just kind of came together in a really nice way. So it was great. And we also both sh- shared what we call our no assholes policy. If we want to work with good people who are trying to do good things and, um, and we don't want to have to be forced to work with people that maybe aren't uh, up to that that level. And it's been really nice to kind of get to bring that to bear and, and work with a lot of great clients who are trying to do those things. I did get a chance to go to your launch party. So I'm not asking questions as someone totally outside of your world, probably, but tell me a little bit about who you are able to bring on as clients when you get this going and what do you do for them? Yeah, sure. So we have a a variety of different clients. They're either uh, tech companies or we have a few agencies as well who are doing more services work. We have one one nonprofit client that really acts more like a company, but but all of them are typically either selling products to nonprofits or to political campaigns, or they have kind of a client tech, um, uh, clean tech. Uh, affiliation and and kind of that's what they're doing and so um, we have a variety of folks who are doing lots of different things so a few examples one client we're working with is called Quiller they have an AI tool 
that they're using for political campaigns and nonprofits to be able to write emails and do lots of other kind of content creation. But then we also have other companies that we're working with as well who have other, you know, kind of political tools and, and nonprofit based tools. So uh, at advocacy is another good example. They're doing social influencer campaigns. So they help both campaigns and nonprofits um, reach out and work with social influencers and be able to kind of promote what they're doing that way. And that can take on lots of different forms of acquisition or fundraising based. I feel like I should go through the whole list now that I'm mentioning like a couple of folks, but we've done some M&A work as well that, um, you know, we typically keep confidential, but um, we've done some things there too. I could go on and on, Michelle, you probably have some other folks you want to talk about too. Well, I think in terms of answering the, the services, what are we offering? We really think of it as like three big buckets. One is obviously the sales and marketing, right? Helping them meet them wherever they are in their foundation of sales and marketing, whether they're just getting started or they already have maybe two or three hires. And and that really runs the gambit. One of the nice things about it just being the two of us is that we're able to be as hands-on as we feel like, right? And we we see an opportunity to help a client. We will do things like go into their sales CRM and help them, you know, advise them on which stages, sales stages they should have and, and even set it up for them if they don't know how to do that, right? Like that's a very hands-on approach and a very tactical example. But we're also looking at them and saying like, okay, what is your revenue goal for the year? And what do you need to hit or what do you want to hit? And then help them build sales plans around that. Do they have a realistic plan in place already or do they need to tweak it? And what should they be tracking? So that's sort of bucket one. Bucket two is obviously product strategy and aligning their product roadmap and making that more efficient, making that more strategic with their overarching goals. And I think that that back and forth between does your product strategy support your revenue strategy and helping them oftentimes build a lot of discipline into their product strategy so that they're not going off track, right, on these great ideas, but might not fulfill what their overall goals are over the next couple of years. And then the third bucket is executive support. Um, It's also what we consider executive therapy, which we obviously wouldn't want to technically call it that. But we don't have to tell you, Nathaniel, right? Like being at the top is a really lonely place. Sometimes you need to bounce ideas off of people either confidentially or just kind of blow off steam and know that you have someone else to talk to about different things. And that might incorporate things like HR stuff, but it might also incorporate, okay, I think I want to take that round of investment, but I'm not quite sure if my executive leadership is going to support that? And how do you go about that? Um, so those are the, the three big buckets. And then Mike said, um, on occasion, we'll do M&A as well when it makes sense. So who do you see as competition or people offering overlapping services? Because there's a piece of this, which is like business coach or executive coach, maybe that third bucket that you're referring to. There are people who are sort of sales consulting there's kind of a, a large marketplace of people offering expertise to firms, social impact or otherwise. Do you find yourself in a position where clients are not considering anyone else? It's really just you or nobody, or do you come up against someone else? Yeah, no, I think that's most mostly it. It's like us or nobody. And we are really blessed. We've been very fortunate. We're at a point now in the year where we will probably not take on any, on any additional clients between now and January because we are, we're, I don't want to say at capacity, but we're at the capacity where we feel like we can continue to support the clients that we have and onboard the clients that we're bringing on and do it well. And that's really, really, really important. 
to us. And so most of the business that we've acquired this year has been all referrals, has been people reaching out to us. And that is great, I think, for where we see ourselves going is is how to in 24 is like, how do we be intentional about the clients that we really want to go after ourselves and expanding into additional industries too. Most of the companies that we're focused on are not, you know, evaluating other options. We've been pretty fortunate thus far. You haven't hired, but one could imagine a third partner or a fourth partner that is a peer that had further complementary skills. Have you thought about that or are you opposed? I don't think we're opposed to it. The areas where I think that we see there being additional complementary skills is demand gen marketing. A lot of these clients that we work with, once they build up their traditional sales right operation, they really need to start then scaling their marketing lead gen operation. And we're not just talking about branding, right? We're talking about leads, 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 and that working in tandem with their sales strategy and their revenue strategy. And and so I think that there's certainly room for that. And whether we work with an outside partner and bring those folks in and pick and choose, I think that's an area where we'd really like to support our clients at some point. Mike and I have spent a lot of time at the high level of that, right? As chief revenue officer, I oversaw both marketing and sales but I don't have the tactical skills of helping them improve their SEO as an example, right? And I don't have the time to write their content if they're doing a content marketing strategy, but I can help them identify, okay, how many leads do you need to generate? And let's think through the channels and what kind of demand gen operation should you have? I just can't be the execution support for that, I think, and neither can Mike, right? So that's one. And then I think I mentioned this earlier on in the podcast, but a financial strategy, a sound financial strategy, especially if you're going for investment, it is hard for a lot of founders and CEOs to have all of these skill sets, right? And many of them need either a CFO at some point or a fractional CFO. And I think whether, again, that's outside support or that's inside support from us, I think that's another area. But Mike, did I miss anything? No, I think that's right. And one of the ways that we've really approached this is, is you know, not that we necessarily want to focus on one small specific slice of things, but we just want to help our clients succeed and do whatever it takes. And if we can dig in and help them figure out a way to move forward, we'll do it. But if not, we're happy to bring other folks in and find somebody who can help with that demand gen marketing or who is an SEO expert or who really knows finance and accounting, whatever it might be. And obviously, like one of the things that we can kind of do is bring that network of folks that we've already uh, worked with in the past or and, and that sort of thing to bear to really help folks out. So you, you're getting a certain lens into the entrepreneurship going on in the social impact company space, particularly around the areas that you're most familiar with. What are you seeing there in terms of how well people are doing, and what is missing. What have you learned from your client base about what is going well and not going well? It's different. It varies from client to client, of course, right? Different companies have different challenges. I think that right now, it's a tough 
period for a lot of nonprofits and a lot of political campaigns from like a fundraising perspective. And that has an impact on our clients as well. It's a tough sales environment. It's a tough time to go to those folks because they might be having some some fundraising difficulties. That's like a challenge that we see kind of universally. Another thing is that this a lot of the entrepreneurs that we work with, they started off as people who worked on campaigns or people who worked at a nonprofit, they didn't get an MBA, you know, like us, right? But they haven't necessarily gone through the, you know, decade of working at a big company. I think that's another thing that that's somewhat universal is that a lot of folks that we work with, you know, they're very passionate about the industry. They're very passionate about the cause and and doing something helpful, but they oftentimes need help with, hey, I've never built a sales team before. I've never had to manage product managers. I've never had to, you know, figure out a support team structure and staff. Those sorts of things, I think, are another challenge that that often folks in our industries have. Michelle, what's the advice that you find yourself giving most often? Be disciplined. I mean, Nathaniel, you might be a, like a good example of this where I, I, you have been a successful salesperson because you had to be. But if I'm guessing, you probably wouldn't think of yourself as a salesperson, right? And maybe that was painful in those early years, right? You built a great product, but then when you're in that founder-driven mode, to keep the lights on and to keep building, someone's got to be doing those sales, right? I don't know. Is that a fair assumption? Or I wasn't with you back in the 90s, so I can't. I am pretty good at selling something that someone wants and that I think would work for them. I am pretty bad at selling something that I don't think is a good fit or that I don't comprehend fully. No, I don't think of myself as a salesperson at all. I think that I can be persuasive sometimes, but that's, that's a different matter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think that discipline is hard when you're running a company or, and we're talking about either the you know founders or you're talking about the, the salespeople, whomever it is that are doing the driving revenue, it's discipline. And then I think oftentimes too related to that is that there's a lot of stuff you could be doing. Right. And so instead of saying, okay, you can't do all 30 things. So we're going to do nothing because I don't have time to do all 30 things today. Instead, my advice is oftentimes just pick five, just pick five, do five things and see what the outcome is. And then tomorrow do another five and then another five. Right. And so giving yourself a little bit of grace, but just go sometimes you can't do everything perfectly and that's okay, but don't not do it because you can't do it perfectly or you can't do it all at once. Because I think people sometimes don't uh, then hit the gas when they need to be hitting the gas, right? Can you give me an example, maybe Mike, since Michelle just talked, of a particular thing that you advised a particular client that really seemed to have impact, that really changed the direction that they were going or accelerated their direction substantially? I think there's like lots of things that, you know, that kind of all add up oftentimes. So we just had a client who told us that they felt like we provided 20x the ROI on kind of what they paid for. And some of that was just us making some introductions and talking to a few of the right folks, right? And making some connections there. So, you know, there's things like that that are very clear lines of, hey, 
you know, we introdu- introduced you to a particular client that you were able to sign up that we knew would be a good fit. So one of the big assets that you have is all of the time, both of you, all of the time in this space and all of the relationships that have developed, that's got to be something that's attractive to someone trying to sell into the same space that you've sold, already sold into and serviced. Exactly, exactly. And that's, you know, and that's, that's kind of one of the easy, clear ROI things. But then I think there's lots of little details that we kind of get into and help you really like build out the company or a particular process or how you're going to structure. I think probably more longer term or even more impactful than just that one relationship, you know, or that one connection. Um, but, um, but, you know, it all kind of works together. It's, it's just easier sometimes to see that ROI right away. So one of the things that we often provide, uh, one of the, the bits of advice that we often give folks is how to set up your contact form on your webpage so that you're collecting the right information instead of just like first name and email address which isn't necessarily that useful on your contact form. If somebody's reaching out, you should ask people like, what organization are you with? What's your title? What's an alternate contact method in case you type your email address in wrong? That's a really specific, small, little thing that actually could have way more impact than like introducing one client because you might get to, you know, 10 more clients, 20 more clients because you've collected the right information. So it really spans the gamut from little things like that, that we've just learned over the years of how to do things in a way that's going to really pay off versus making that, you know, one introduction, helping bring on your first sales hire, how to, you know, position your product in a pretty competitive market for, for different things. So you know, it's hard to kind of narrow it down to one thing, but hopefully that gives you a, a few examples of, of the things we've done for folks. Michelle, what, what's your answer to that? In addition to the, the discipline comment that I made before, because I know that sounds like really high level advice, but I think in a more tactical way is that we have an understanding of what sort of stats they should be seeing at different parts of their sales and marketing funnel. And so helping them not just capture the right inter- information and optimize it, but then how many leads did they get and how many of those leads did they actually convert into sales opportunities? And then how many of those opportunities did they win? What kind of conversion rates should they be seeing? And when something looks off, right, whether it's way too high or it's way too low, then helping them diagnose what they should do next. Oftentimes, I think what happens in that next step of, okay, you didn't collect the right information, but you'd be shocked, especially in the early days, where is that data going? It's going into a Google Doc. And someone looks at it, you know, every couple days or whatever. Well, we know that if you connect with that person within 15, 20 minutes of them submitting on that form, your chances of converting that into your pipeline, your sales pipeline, and then therefore closing it is significantly higher. But if you're letting that lead sit for 24, 72 hours or not doing anything with it, the intern was supposed to do something with it. I used air quotes for people listening in, right? That makes a huge difference, right? You're spending all that money and all that energy to attract those leads, but then you don't have the right steps in place. And so that's a really tactical thing of of helping them develop the metrics around that, but then also the muscle around converting and converting and converting and moving those to the next steps. One thing we really haven't talked about, although you've to some degree mentioned it along the way obliquely, is what the message is of a particular company when they are trying to put their product 
on best display for a sale. And in a certain sense, we're asking today in the podcast about that message about grow for good. And you're saying, look, this is, this is what we offer. And you're, you're kind of verbally packaging what benefits there are to using you as a consultancy. But what I've observed a lot in companies uh, that I've run and, and that I've talked to is that people struggle with that particularly technical people that have built a nice product, but don't know how to convey what the benefits are or why someone should buy it. Do you have a process for that? Or do you have thoughts about how to kind of deliver the message of what you have effectively? Totally, totally. And I think for us, so much of it begins with your two and five year goals. Some folks have not made it to the point where they they think of where do we want to be in five years? Who do you want to be serving? Or do you have a revenue goal in mind? You don't have a revenue goal in mind? Well, let's work on one. Let's figure out again, what kind of company you want to be. And what where do you want to go? Sometimes it's backwards math of helping them pick that number as opposed to you have a number that you need to hit. And with that in mind, you know, a lot of folks have not done that, that exercise of sitting down and thinking about what do you say about yourselves? What do you say about what makes you special and your differentiation? And that is something that I think I've learned a lot from Stu Trevelyan over the years, former CEO of NGP Van, is that he was always hammering home differentiation, differentiation, right? And that really stuck with me, especially in this exercise. But so what makes you different? And then what do your competitors say about themselves and how do they differentiate themselves? And when you're losing, why are you losing? And putting that essentially into a matrix, right? And looking at it and then thinking, okay, how do we craft a very high level value proposition for the the service that we offer, the product that we offer, or who we are as a company? And how do you really prioritize that? Because as you know, you only get so much attention from people as they're viewing your company and what do you want to stick, right? And how does that give you a leg up? And so that is an exercise that actually we're in the process of doing with two clients that we're onboarding and one is about to go to market with their product and obviously can't say who, but differentiation is really important for them. One of the challenges that we have also seen with that is that some products have been built and they do some something that is absolutely phenomenal, right? It is a critical part of infrastructure, but how do you resonate with the buyers and how do they even know to look for you? And so how do you make sure that that branding and that positioning that you've established helps lead those people who are having whatever that pain point is to you? Because what you're offering is so complex and nuanced, but it's really important. I don't know if that answers your question. But. It does. And I mean, I think what is useful in this conversation is for people to understand how you think. And I think that that's why that answer was useful. I'm curious about the the question of sort of negative messaging because I, I was texting with a proprietor of a firm in the political space recently, and he was mentioning to me some negative aspects to some of the companies as a method of, I think, differentiating his firm from others. Do you think it's appropriate? Would you coach? when you're putting your best foot forward to ever make comments about your competition, fair comments perhaps, that drop them down in the eyes of of a potential buyer? I would never lead with it. 
I mean, that's not the strategy that I would go with first. Maybe there's a time and place for that. And it depends on the scenario. And every once in a while, I suppose you have to, you know, take a different approach. And so I wouldn't like blanket say, like, never do that. But I I don't think that it benefits you nine times out of 10, or maybe even 99 times out of 100 to, to lead with that. But differentiating and doing it in a softer manner, you know, using language more like, unlike some of our competitors, we do it differently here. When you use softer language like that, you're still making your point and you're still making the buyer think about that and think like, well, okay, well, in my buying process, this is something I need to see. Are they doing that when I'm looking at this versus them? I think it gets the job done. When you see that tactic, it oftentimes backfires, I think, especially in sort of this like niche, like political tech landscape. But again, there's always a time and place for some of those tactics. It's just not my preferred, to be totally honest. But maybe I'm too nice. I don't know. Given that a lot of what you're selling, which includes the word grow in the title, is helping people scale their firms, right? Which is one of the easier things to sell an entrepreneur if they can be persuaded that that it'll actually work, right? What what you're telling them. Do you ever feel like, ah, I wish I had the kind of firm that I could apply these same principles to? Or are you happy with your stated preference to like keep this something more of a lifestyle company? Or do you feel like, why am I not doing this for myself? Michelle and I may have different different responses to this. It's a nice change of pace from having worked at a firm and being so focused on one thing for so long. I think it's nice to be able to come in and work with some different folks and have some some different things to to kind of focus on and not necessarily be like super in the nitty-gritty of kind of how each of these companies are working but be able to to focus on some of the higher level problems at each one of these different places. It goes back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, where it's nice to get a view into how different folks are doing things and and not be so focused on just one thing. So it's a nice change of pace. Maybe someday that will change. But I think for now, it feels like a, a really good um, thing for me, at least. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think one thing we didn't really mention before either is that one of our goals at some point, and one of the things that we aligned on when we were, you know, talking about Grow for Good as a theory rather than like being in the mix of it, was that eventually we'd like to start doing some of our own investing, right? Picking and choosing some of the companies that we feel really passionate about, as well as sitting on boards. And those are things that I really just have never had time to do in the past. And I'm excited for those opportunities. And I think those are other ways to be involved in companies without you being the owner. Have you ever accepted stock rather than dollars in exchange for services? And that's essentially the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I think that 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 diversification of that, whether we're, you know, part of that ideation or we're being pitched that idea at a very early stage, I think that would be really exciting and just something, something different and keeping it fresh so that we don't get too itchy, but never say never, Nathaniel, you know? (laughs) That makes sense. Is there a question I should have asked you guys that I failed to? No, this has been a lovely little chat. I feel like we've we've caught up in a nice way. It's been a long time. And happy birthday. 
Well, it's actually tomorrow, but I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. I know. And you know what? We won't sing happy birthday to you. (laughs) Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. I do feel like we could ask you a bunch of questions, though. I think we got a one or two in, but I feel like that's maybe for your thousandth episode, you can do one where people get to ask you questions instead. Someone just suggested that I find somebody good to interview me. I told them that I, I don't make that great of a guest, but perhaps someone could elicit interesting responses. <laughs> I'm up for the challenge. I think Mike is too. So if you ever want <laughs> yeah, to exactly. the we'll tables just, uh, have we'll... turned. Exactly. Oh, exactly. Scary. It's really an honor and a privilege to get to see you guys again and, and hear what you're up to. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you for inviting us. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. And glad to, glad to uh, hear that you're back up to doing three of these a week. It's great. It is fun to do. Well, thanks, Nathaniel. Talk soon. Those were Mike and Michelle. They are at growforgoodstrategies.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.